This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the lead. Congress has referred Donald Trump to the Justice Department on criminal charges. And the lead starts right now. The pressure now on the Justice Department, which must now decide whether to criminally charge a former president for his actions surrounding the deadly Capitol insurrection. The evidence handed over today from the January 6th committee and brand new witness testimony. A committee member will join me in moments. Plus, reaction from Republican circles, including former Vice President Mike Pence, after the mob tried to hunt him down on January 6th inside the Capitol. Also, with a deadline quickly approaching, President Biden's growing problem at the border as more migrants line up to cross into the U.S. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. A bombshell January 6th Select House Committee hearing wrapped less than two hours ago. The committee members unanimously voted to refer criminal charges against Donald Trump to the Justice Department. These charges include, one, obstruction of an official proceeding, two, conspiracy to defraud the United States, three, conspiracy to make a false statement, and four, aiding or assisting an insurrection. We propose to the committee advancing referrals where the gravity of the specific offense, the severity of its actual harm, and the centrality of the offender to the overall design of the unlawful scheme to overthrow the election compel us to speak. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. Theoretically, I guess that's true. Now, we should note these referrals carry no actual legal weight. It is now up to the Department of Justice to decide whether or not to charge Trump. But the former president was not the only target today. The committee also referred four Republican congressmen to the House Ethics Committee for not complying with the January 6th committee subpoenas and leveled criminal charges against Trump attorney John Eastman, John Eastman's attorney's just issued a statement saying in part, quote, a criminal referral from a congressional committee is not binding on the Department of Justice and carries no more legal weight than a referral from any American citizen. In fact, a referral from the January 6th committee should carry a great deal less weight due to the absurdly partisan nature of the process that produced it, unquote. CNN's Sarah Murray is on Capitol Hill, where committee members laid out their legal arguments for the criminal charge referrals. The House Select Committee investigating January 6th, convening publicly one last time. He lost the 2020 election and knew it. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. And laying out its case that former President Donald Trump was ultimately responsible for the attack on the U.S. Capitol. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. The committee referring multiple crimes to the Justice Department that they say the former president committed while trying to stay in the White House. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings 
warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump. Including assisting or aiding an insurrection, conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy to make false statements. It believes there is sufficient evidence for two others, conspiracy to injure or impede an officer, and seditious conspiracy. The panel also referring attorney and Trump ally John Eastman to DOJ, but saying DOJ will have to determine who else should face prosecution. Our understanding of the role of many individuals may be incomplete even today because they refuse to answer our questions. We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a far more complete picture. Republican lawmakers who snubbed committee subpoenas referred to the House Ethics Committee. After 17 months of investigating and roughly 1,000 witness interviews, the committee determined that Trump knew the fraud allegations he was pushing were false, but continued to amplify them anyway. The committee has evidence that ex-President Trump planned to declare victory and unlawfully to call for the vote counting to stop, and that he told numerous allies about his intent in the weeks before the election. Oh, say a couple of words. Even as some of Trump's closest allies, like Hope Hicks, worried the bogus fraud claims were damaging his legacy, Trump persisted. He said something along the lines of, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is, is winning. Trump worked on a scheme to transmit false electoral college ballots and replace Department of Justice leadership with one that would do his bidding, even pressuring his own vice president. President Trump spearheaded an unprecedented campaign to coerce him to do it anyway, ultimately culminating in a dangerous threat to Mr. Pence's life on January 6th. The committee also highlighting Trump's $250 million fundraising haul between the election and January 6th, raised primarily off claims of election fraud that did not exist, questioning whether any of the money was used to pay lawyers who may have tried to obstruct the congressional investigation, and evidence from one unnamed witness who was urged to stay loyal to Trump. The witness believed this was an effort to affect her testimony, and we are concerned that these efforts may have been a strategy to prevent the committee from finding the truth. Now look, DOJ may be interested in evidence the committee has to provide if they do believe there was some kind of obstruction, but I think what we are already hearing from witnesses, including that lawyer from John Eastman, is that these referrals from the committee are not legally binding. They don't hold any more weight than a referral from an American citizen. The attorney from Eastman also said that the committee missed an opportunity to make real legislative changes by pursuing a pretend criminal case. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in January 6th committee member, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia. Um, first, let me just get your response to uh, the attorney for Mr. Eastman saying that uh, these referrals carry no more weight than uh, any other referral from any other American citizen and basically attacking the committee. Well, I think this has been a standard practice over the course of our investigation that people attempt to attack the committee, discredit the committee, rather than focus on the real issue here, is that we have a former president of the United States who essentially attempted to stay in office um, after he lost an election. There was also a comment uh, that Mike Pence made. Um, he attacked the partisan nature of the committee, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing that I thought was interesting is this is how he spins it. He said today, uh, look, as I wrote in my book, I think the president's actions and words on January 6th were reckless, but I don't know that it's criminal to take bad advice from lawyers. 
What, what, do you, what do you make of that? I'm actually kind of tired of Mike Pence trying to have it both ways. You know, he really you know, takes the limelight and likes to be portrayed as a hero who, because he did his job and followed the law, but at the same time then you know, goes back and tries to attack uh, a committee that is bipartisan. Really, it's been one of the most bipartisan committees um, in the House and the way we've worked together and presented the evidence. And the facts are the facts. Um, and you know, he has tried to discredit it in the public sphere. Many have tried to undermine the you know, nature of the composition of the committee through the courts, and the courts have clearly rejected that. The truth is, is we did our job as a congressional committee. It's for oversight and legislation. We've laid out the facts. We've painted a very clear picture for the American people of what led up to and happened on that day. It's spelled out in our report. The executive summary is out today, later this week. The full comprehensive report will be out, along with all of the testimony. In the executive summary, look at the witnesses we have in there. You know, 99% of them are Republicans who served in the Trump administration, and many of them were appointed um, by Trump himself and conformed by his Republican Senate. Um, and those are the people who had the courage to come forward and speak and talk about the facts. So, you know, people who continue to evade the questions of the committee um, and try to undermine the committee as a committee within Congress, you know, they, you know, Mr. Eastman's lawyer said, you know, it wasn't worth any more than, uh, you know, potentially any citizen saying it, you know, they're, um, you know, it's kind of just hot air. It's de- deflection, I think. And, you know, to get back to the point is all of this should be focused on the facts. And we laid that out today and our referrals, um, it's true that they don't carry the weight of law. And it's also true, and I've said this early on, I mean, the Attorney General, you know, Mr. Garland, you don't have to wait for us. And they haven't. They've been running with this investigation. And, you know, since we're not coordinating our efforts, their efforts, you know, I look at it as like a relay with a passing off a baton. The runner receiving the baton is already running, you know, and they've got to keep going with it. So I think we've you know, our committee's coming to an end because the end of this Congress, we've issued our report. And, you know, we've passed this off to the Department of Justice with the full information we've gathered. And we recommend that they look at criminal activity of the people starting at the top with yeah. President Trump, former President Trump. So um, I know that the committee was, uh, the select committee was only formed for this one Congress. Um, but I also know that, you know, midterm elections generally swing the way this one swung. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh you know, Kevin McCarthy or whoever the Republican speaker becomes was going to kill the committee, even if it had been put in there for, for more than one term. And I'm wondering if you felt like you had enough time uh, and resources to investigate everything you wanted to when it came to the insurrection. Um, I think that we did a comprehensive investigation talking to a thousand, this is roughly hundreds of thousands of documents, including, you know, a huge tranche of information from the Secret Service. I mean, this is not the end of this. We look at this as really the beginning, in a sense, um, you know, as we said in the, the hearing today for the Department of Justice to take the information that we've gathered along with what they've gathered. And the end of this is holding people accountable and making sure like this, something like this doesn't happen again. So um, there's more to be done than we had time and ultimately resources for. Um, do you think the January, do you think the Justice Department would have been as aggressive as they've been? And I know there are a lot of people who think they haven't been aggressive enough. Mm. But, I mean, they did get uh, guilty pleas for the Oath Keepers on seditious conspiracy. There have been other charges. Uh, and who knows what's going to come. Um, do you think that they would have done as much as they did if it hadn't been for the January 6th committee kind of blazing a trail? And on that subject, why shouldn't the Senate form, now that Democrats have 51 votes and they can form committees and have subpoena power, et cetera, why shouldn't the Senate take up this charge now? They were attacked, too. Well, as far as the Department of Justice, I think... It's a lot of speculation in some regards. I mean, we know the Department of Justice has been investigating. I looked, looked at it as concentric circles. You know, it started on the outside. They started with the people who they had direct evidence of trespassing, you know, vandalism, you know, attacking yeah. police officers. 
And they were like 900 people have been charged. And we kind of started at the center and worked our way out. So they, they get, this is, I think, the point when those two concentric investigations have converged. We're passing it off to the Department of Justice. And I would like to see them go all the way to the top and hold those people in the highest levels of you know, trust of the American people as the former president and you know, others who have failed to come speak to the committee under subpoena uh, to hold those people accountable where applicable. Um, and you know, the other thing about the Senate is I certainly think you know, the Senate having a Democratic majority with 51 votes has the capability to take, especially the recommendations, the legislative recommendations that we've laid out um, and move forward with those in applicable you know, committees of jurisdiction to make sure that we can you know, actually act on them. It was always a concern of mine is you know, we can lay out what our recommendations are legislatively to pre- process-wise within different you know, agencies and departments in the government to prevent something like this in the future, but not holding the majority in the House past these midterms. We know Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, they want to come in. The very people who didn't comply with subpoenas right. of the House want to be the Speaker of the House, and they want to be the Chair of the Judiciary Committee in the House, and they want to enforce subpoenas that they wouldn't even answer themselves. And that, how ironic is that? You, um, you weren't reelected. You lost your election mm-hmm. campaign. Uh, do you think that because of your work on this committee, I know your opponent, your Republican opponent, who's now a congresswoman-elect, made a lot of hay out of that? I would say that, you know, I think it certainly had an impact in my district. People who didn't like it really didn't like it. A combination of redistricting with new district lines. And, you know, I went into this, the the work of this committee, getting to the facts, the truth about what happened on January 6th, because we don't ever want to see something like that happen again and certainly don't want to see it be successful. So the work I did on the committee, you know, from the onset has been more important to me rather than Elaine gets reelected. So, um, you know, I think that it's all been worth it, this effort. Um, and I think we made a tangible impact on elections around the country. Look at the midterms. The Republicans might have won the House, but by the slenness of margins. Um, and the crazies, the most you know, emphatic election deniers, they didn't win around the country. And yeah. I think that's really a victory for the Democrats and partially by the work of this committee. Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Laurie of Virginia, thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Good yes, to see thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had the next steps for the Justice Department with criminal referrals now in hand, plus lawyers in a Capitol riot trial who said the actions today by the January 6th committee complicate their defense case for the far right extremists Proud Boys group. Also on the Hill today, the warning to five other Republicans trying to block Kevin McCarthy from becoming Speaker. Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead. The Justice Department now has the January 6th committee's criminal referrals, including four criminal referrals against Donald Trump and additional referrals for his attorney, John Eastman. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. Evan, the Justice Department has the referrals and uh, they will have the backup information and transcripts and such. What next? Well, for them, Jake, I think, you know, the importance for the Justice Department is that they already have their investigations ongoing Obviously, we, we now have a lot of clarity that, you know, Donald Trump is at the center of at least one part of what Jack Smith, the special counsel, is looking at, as well as John Eastman and, and Jeffrey Clark, two people who are big parts of this committee's report. Those investigations are already pretty far along. So uh, the Justice Department is awaiting still the transcripts. Right. Uh, and thousands of hours of witness testimony, video witness testimony. They will get that. They've been asking for that for months. Um, what do they hope to learn from the transcripts? Well, I think the importance for them is they want to see what witnesses said to this committee that, you know, certainly for witnesses that, that have spoken to the FBI, whether there's any difference in that testimony. They also, 
need to see some of this evidence that the committee says shows uh, some potential obstruction, right? Those are things that I think are going to be very important for prosecutors. As you pointed out, you know, they've been waiting and asking for this for, for months, and there's a trial getting underway today of members of the Proud Boys. Uh, it was delayed a few months ago in part because of the, the work that this committee was doing and the, the concerns about publicity. So that's been a very big concern for prosecutors. They need to see whether there's any witnesses that have an impact on what these defendants are up for trial for. All right, I'm impressed. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN uh, legal analyst uh, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, as we heard in Evans reporting, the transcripts of thousands of hours of committee interviews, they're the real meat and the potatoes for the Department of Justice. That's what they're really waiting for. Why do you think the committee waited to turn over the entirety of the transcripts until now, until this week? Jake, I think it's an example of politics over prosecution. The fact of the matter is DOJ has been begging for this information for many months. They sent a letter, DOJ sent a letter eight months ago in April of this year to the committee saying, please send us what you have. We need it for our investigations. We know that still has not been done because Merrick Garland two weeks ago said we're still waiting on all the information. And here's why prosecutors have to have all that information. Number one, you want to know if there's anything helpful to your case, of course, anything that could help you build the case. But number two, you have to know if your witnesses have said anything different, inconsistent, contradictory. You have an absolute obligation to know that as a prosecutor and potentially to turn it over to the defense. So the reasons why the committee hasn't turned it over, I can only assume are political, but there's sure as heck not helping the prosecution here. So just to play defense for the committee for a second, I think there is a perspective from the politicians on the committee that the Justice Department is too cautious, too weak, too afraid to prosecute. uh, And that's been one of the issues. I also know there have been people who have been interviewed by both the committee and by the grand grand jury and and the investigators there who were surprised at how little the Justice Department seemed to know compared to the January 6th committee. Um, yeah, Jake, so... Oh. I know that you're biased in favor of prosecutors, and that's understandable, <laughs> but give us a... I mean, that's, that's the politician's perspective of this. So, first of all, I think there's a bit of tension there between the committee's position that, A, we want you prosecutors to forge ahead quickly and bravely, but B, we're not going to give you everything we have. But, to show that I can play it both ways, I do fault DOJ for getting beat to the punch by the committee on some of this. That is DOJ's detriment. And by the way, prosecutors have far greater investigative tools than the committee. The committee actually notes that in the report that they uh, that they issued today. So I think there's blame to go around both ways here. Now prosecutors will have this information and now they can make full use of it. And now uh, we're also told that Trump's legal team hopes to also glean new information from these transcripts when they're released. How might Trump's legal team use the full transcripts, use the new information? Trump's lawyers are going to go through every word of this. That is their job. That is their right. They're going to look for any inconsistencies. They're going to look for any basis to attack the potential witnesses against them, preferably in court. That is what defense lawyers do. And all of this material, when it becomes public, is fair game for prosecutors and for potential defendants alike. And where does this all leave Jack Smith? He's the special counsel newly appointed by the attorney general to lead the two criminal investigations into Donald Trump. Yeah, Jake, I don't think Jack Smith or anyone at DOJ really cares much that this is being framed as a quote-unquote referral. I think prosecutors just sort of see that as political showmanship. But I guarantee you 
Jack Smith is reading every word of that report that they released today. I guarantee you that he and his team will read every word of the full report that's coming out on Wednesday because, again, they want to see what evidence is out there that they may not have. And they want to see if they have any problems with witness inconsistency or other problems that you may have as a prosecutor. So this is going to be really important to Jack Smith. And now I think there's really no restraints on him using all this evidence. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Coming up, reaction to the criminal referrals today from former Vice President Pence after the mob chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, tried to hunt down him and his family on January 6th. Stay with us. Continuing in our politics lead, the link between violent extremists, the insurrection, and the threat these extremists still might pose to our democracy. Today, the seditious conspiracy trial against leaders of the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, begins for their roles in the alleged scheme to stop Joe Biden from assuming the presidency. Federal prosecutors intend to prove that four leaders and another member of the group plotted and broadly encouraged violence in the run-up to the attack on the Capitol. Let's bring in former Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman of Virginia, who also previously served as senior technical advisor to the January 6th committee, along with former Department of Homeland Security Cybersecurity Director Chris Krebs. Thanks to both of you for being here. Denver, let me start with you. Today, the January 6th committee recommended the Justice Department charged Trump with multiple crimes. What did you think of the referrals? Do you think the panel successfully laid out the case against Trump and his allies? You know, regardless of what, you know, people might have critiques of the committee, when you look at the eight uh, hearings before this, when you look at everything that they've done, uh, I think this was probably the natural evolution at this point. And by the way, um, I think when you look at the evidence and the way that they presented Trump, his uh, attachment to Team Crazy, his legal state of mind, uh, the incitement, the tweets, uh, everything that they wrapped around him, I think it, uh, you know, I think DOJ would have done it anyway, but I do believe that the committee really proved their point and proved their case on Donald Trump. I think what I did think, though, Jake, is I think there's a lot of crazies that are calling or crawling to Mar-a-Lago, begging him to get back on Twitter. And I think what the committee also did, because I think they want to be protected, but I think they showed him that he's the GOTUS, right? He's the grifter of the United States. And I think they were able to prove that today. Yeah, they made a lot of arguments about how what he was doing was to raise hundreds of millions of dollars that he didn't spend on lawsuits he spent on who knows what. Chris, one of the criminal statutes that the committee says there is, suffi- there is sufficient evidence to charge Trump with is, uh, it's kind of a, a rarely prosecuted one, aiding, assisting, or comforting those engaged in an insurrection. That presumably refers to groups like the Pou- Proud Boys right. or the Oath Keepers who were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, some of them. Um, and, and Donald Trump obviously told the Proud Boys during that debate, stand back and stand by. What do you make of that referral specifically? Well, I, th- I think it's, it's the evidence itself that's so critical. And I think that's what Jack Smith and the Department of Justice really want to get their hands on is the voluminous transcripts, the records. I had the opportunity to review my own transcript in my interview with the committee earlier today. So it's that evidence that they want to get their hands on so that they can map it against their own interviews to ensure consistency and they don't have anybody that's out of line with, with some of the testimony they may have provided DOJ. And that evidence, I think, will then inform what happens down the road with, with the Department of Justice. But it's that public record that uh, establishes what Trump did and what his enablers and those circles, those rings around him, uh, did it to, to further this conspiracy. But this is a, it's a significant charge. Uh, the fact that they would go on the record and make that criminal referral, establishing that evidence, uh, means that, that hey, they've, they've got the goods. There's a lot here. 
and uh, DOJ needs to pursue. Denver, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who continues to sound as if he's, he's going to run for president, he is today again railing against the committee, calling it partisan, saying he doesn't think charges against Trump are warranted. Uh, you're, uh, you were a Republican member of Congress, uh, and you did work for the committee. How do you respond to the allegations from folks like Mike Pence that this is a partisan committee? Well, I, I watched him in action, and it's not. It's, it's a data and facts-driven committee. And, you know, it's a long stretch, you know, between him saying that Trump was getting bad advice, you know, from lawyers to hang Mike Pence. I, you know, I find it a bit pathetic. I think when people get into a political state of mind, they have a tough time with facts. I don't think Pence is facts-challenged. I think he's just willing to do anything to get elected. And I think that's a sad day, you know, for conservatives everywhere. And, you know, when you look across, you know, Chris was talking about the documents, you know, Chris's testimony itself, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of pages probably of interviews and things like that. But there's also tens of millions of lines of data that I hope is transmitted over to the Department of Justice, which is the call detail records and the massive link analysis that was done based on command and control. So, Again, um, when Penn says something like that and the data and the facts back up what happened on January 6th, you come across sounding craven and a little desperate. And Chris, the mob, of course, did storm the Capitol shouting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. Uh, And they've said that they were inspired by Trump to do so. Trump certainly was putting a target on Pence's back uh, rhetorically, if not not, uh, literally. Uh, How worried are you about the fact that some of this seems to be becoming normal and accepted among the MAGA base of this country. I I think that's the critical point here, is that if you do not hold these people accountable, if you give them a mulligan, you know, a free shot here, you shift the Overton window, the permission structures, what's allowed. And I think that's where the really most critical next steps is holding the people accountable that both activated, that supported, that drove this, and then actually participated in it. Uh, or else we're going to see it again. And the problem is, is they'll learn from their mistakes the last time. and They'll be better. They could be more successful the next time. And that's really what I think is the most concerning aspect of all this right now. Chris Krebs and Denver Riggleman, uh, two uh, Republican officials who were, have been very brave throughout this whole thing. And I thank you uh, to both of you for that. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, the emergency request to the Supreme Court ahead of a policy expiring in a few days, the policy that critics say will open the U.S. to a rush of immigrants at the border. Stay with us. In our national lead right now, cities along the U.S.-Mexico border are scrambling to handle thousands of migrants waiting to get into the United States. And with the Trump-era pandemic policy known as Title 42 set to expire on Wednesday, the number of migrants seeking asylum is expected to rise rapidly, a federal official says border authorities in the Rio Grande Valley have already encountered between 900 to 1,200 migrants daily in the past two weeks. CNN's David Culver is live from the border in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. David, what are you seeing on your side of the border? A continuous steady flow, Jake. In fact, we have noticed folks here as they're preparing on both sides of the river to help certain people who have lined up on this side, the Mexican side, to get across. But this is what's new in really just the past few days. We haven't seen this before. If you look down here along the side of the U.S. side of the border, you can see there's a long line of migrants who have been really put in that long line by U.S. Border Patrol. We've seen for the first time Border Patrol coming down onto that side of the bank. 
and helping try to keep an orderly line so as to process them as they come then up the hill. The other thing, Jake, that we've noticed, and actually let me show you over here, this truck here that's moving, they are reinforcing what is a brand new fence that's gone up in just the past few days. And that too is to keep an orderly fashion for any sort of potential surge that they might be expecting. Now this is happening at all hours. And we can show you what we captured here in uh, the early morning hours. And that's folks coming over four or five in the morning, doesn't matter, 24 seven, this is taking place. And they're coming as families, shedding a lot of their belongings on the riverside and then making their way up to be processed. And it's happening in freezing cold conditions. But one thing, Jake, we should point out is there is a determination from some of these migrants we've spoken with who have now made two, three, some even four attempts to enter the U.S. And why are we seeing people crossing now as opposed to waiting when Title 42 is supposed to end, which is just in a couple days? Right. So that's a question we were putting to some of the migrants as well. What, what is the timeline they're working off? For some, it's just a matter of when they happen to show up from their long caravan and trek from places like Venezuela. They just timed it out so that this is the day that they happen to be going in and attempting to enter the U.S. and be processed. Others, though, are seeing this as a more strategic approach. They say, OK, if it's happening on Wednesday and if you have really long lines like we're seeing here and if they know from family members and friends that on the other side it takes several days to be processed, they're saying get in line now. By the time we're processed, it's past the 21st and perhaps then Title 42 is over and we can get in through asylum, Jake. All right, David Culver in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Thank you so much. This afternoon, a group of Republican governors made an emergency bid to the U.S. Supreme Court to try and keep Title 42 in place. The states are asking the court to grant an immediate junction. Let's bring in CNN Chief White House Correspondent Phil Manningly. And Phil, just to remind our viewers, uh, Title 42 expires Wednesday. That's the Trump era uh, policy that allows, because of the pandemic, it allows the administration, the U.S. government, to send asylum seekers immediately back. The Biden administration is pushing back right now on calls to extend the policy. Why, given that they've been using it all this time? You know, when you talk to Biden administration officials, they say two things. One, they are very clear that this is what the court has ordered and they will comply with that court order and also that they are very much prepared or preparing intensively over the course of the last several weeks, in fact, for the order to be lifted on Wednesday. While this is certainly problematic and administration officials, when they're being candid, will acknowledge there will be a surge as many as double the number of migrants at the border that they've been seeing over the course of the last several weeks could be coming starting on Wednesday. And they also acknowledge that there will be a resource issue. They have been asking Congress for more than $3 billion in additional funding pressing Republicans to agree to that going forward, all as they've surged resources in the form of personnel, technology, infrastructure, down to critical areas of the border going forward. We're also told as soon as tomorrow, there should be new policy and personnel proposals that will be rolled out. They know this is a significant issue, but they're not preparing for any pause or any potential court action that might push it off into the future. They are preparing for Wednesday. They are expecting that's what's going to happen, Jake. Phil, is it not just a fact that the Biden administration could appeal this court ruling if they wanted to? You know, the difficulty here is really twofold. I think on the technical side of things, it was the Biden administration that actually moved to lift Title 42 earlier in the spring. Now, that ran into legal issues as well. This case is separate to some degree. 
But why the why the Biden administration moved forward on that front, why the CDC said there was no longer the public health rationale to hold Title 42 into place is in part because of the pressure the administration has gotten from immigration advocates saying this is not a humane way to handle border policy. This is not the way to operate when it comes to asylum. They should move back to the regular order and where there are significant problems that I think both sides would acknowledge, they should move legislatively to fix those. The problem, of course, is there's no legislative action in the near term. The Biden administration has been dealing with this issue for the entirety of their first two years in office. And while they have held Title 42 up to this point, very clearly that is going to be ending soon, at least as it currently stands, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. And our politics lead, we are just 15 days away from the new Congress being sworn in today. A warning to the five House Republicans who are vowing to block Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, from becoming the Speaker of the House. In a letter, 14 Republicans set to chair House committees in the new Congress are calling out their colleagues, warning them to not squander the party's majority. Let's get to CNN's Jessica Dean, who's on Capitol Hill. And Jessica, private discussions are one thing, but this is an attempt at public pressure by the soon-to-be chairman. That is exactly right, Jake, and and that's the differentiator here. This is just the latest example of this increasing public pressure campaign that we are seeing as we get ever closer to January 3rd. So just to kind of set the table for everybody, there are these five House Republicans who say they are absolutely against Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker. That's them right there on your screen. Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Bob Good, Ralph Norman, and Matt Rosendale. Now, here's a simple math problem for you. McCarthy can afford to lose four. There are five of them. They have said they are going to vote all together. Either they're going yes or they're going no. And right now they, they appear to be unmoved and in the fact that they are against Kevin McCarthy. Now, in this letter, uh, again, released today, let me read you in part what these 14 House Republicans who are set again to chair committees wrote. They said, we urge our colleagues, let us not squander this majority before we even take back the gavels. Time is of the essence and the American people want us to get to work now. Majorities are earned never given. And the American people will remember how we chose to begin ours. And again, just the latest indication of this public pressure campaign that we're seeing. Jake, to your point, we know that McCarthy has been talking with these members behind the scenes. But now, in the, in the last few days, and I would suspect in the days to come, we're going to continue to see this play out more publicly as well. And Jessica, what do we know about any private discussions that Leader McCarthy might be having with these five detractors? What, what do they want and is McCarthy willing to concede on any of their demands? Right. That's really the crux of this, right? Like they're really trying to hold out to get these things that they want. Chief among them is they want some changes to the rules that would allow a single member to call for a vote to oust the speaker. That would essentially make members stronger. Um, It would also allow one member, as it really kind of indicates, to uh, call for this vote to oust the speaker. McCarthy so far has has not wanted to give in to that, has not given in to that. That is the one thing they really, really want. And Jake, it's also important to remember there are moderates in in the House Republican Party and and, and, and among House Republicans who don't want to see those sorts of rule changes happen either. And Kevin McCarthy really having to do the splits to appease everyone. Uh, It remains to be seen how he will get there with these five members, Jake. That's just such a recipe for madness and chaos for any House Speaker. I can't imagine ever seeding that. Um, Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Coming up, Mm -hmm. the glaring omission from Vladimir Putin as the Russian leader met with his closest ally today. Stay with us.
In our worldly, Russia unleashing a fresh wave of drone strike terror across Ukraine today, damaging that country's power infrastructure, cutting off some water supplies, trying to weaponize winter. This as Russian President Vladimir Putin meets with one of his closest allies, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is following all of this. Nick, Russia has deployed troops into Ukraine from Belarus in the past, yet the war seemed at the time to be an afterthought for these leaders today. Yeah, not something they mentioned by name, but really the kind of spine of every comment they essentially made. The first that's getting the most amount of attention is Vladimir Putin saying that he was not there as necessarily part of absorbing Belarus into a part of Russia. Let me wind the clock back. Back in August 2021, uh, Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, lent on Moscow to send forces in to put down protests and then... Uh, Russia asked for payback, allowing uh, Belarus, asking Belarus to allow its territory as part of the invasion. Now they appear to be using Belarusian territory to threaten Ukraine again. Exercises on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border involving Russian troops, leaving Ukraine very concerned as to whether this might be the beginning of yet another bid uh, to cross over and invade into Ukraine. Ukraine's top brass openly talking about that. Today's visit, a rare one of Putin going to Minsk, going to Belarus to to see his uh, geopolitically weaker neighbour certainly heightened that sense of speculation. Something is afoot. He made references, oblique ones, to special kinds of weapons that might be uh, in uh, Belarusian skies, in Russian jets. They were accused, Belarus, of allowing their skies to be part of, to be used for part of the bombing raids that happened last week uh, inside of Ukraine. So something, I think, is clearly afoot between those two men. They certainly want the rest of the world to think that, whether or not it will lead to an actual land incursion uh, from Belarus. We'll have to see. It may well be blustered, Jake. And meanwhile, Ukraine struggling to restore power, some cities experiencing month-long outages because of these Russian attacks. Yeah, look, this is the most bleak part of winter, minus 20, minus 30 in some cities. They've not had uh, power for uh, weeks, and that not only affects running water, it affects any kind of source of heat as well. And so these strikes have continued, some of the worst last week, although today 35 Iranian attack drones, loitering drones that essentially pilotless hover over targets and attack them were dispatched. Ukraine says they shot 30 out of the skies, but still the five that appear to have got through caused damage to infrastructure. You saw rare pictures there of firefighters uh, putting out the blaze in one Kiev area. This is basically the toll of trying to bring down morale amongst the civilian population. People are dying, certainly, in these strikes. What also is slowly being rubbed away is the sense of safety Ukrainians have and their ability to keep warm at this utterly bleak time of year, Jake. Brutal. Just absolutely brutal. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the big story on Capitol Hill, the January 6th Select House Committee asking the Justice Department to charge Donald Trump with crimes. How the move leaves the former president's legal team in a bind as they weigh their next move. Stay with us. And welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a state of emergency, a humanitarian crisis. El Paso's mayor says that city is about to be overwhelmed. When Title 42 is lifted in two days, the city is now preparing for 6,000 migrants to arrive in that town each day. Plus, the legal mess for Donald Trump extending well beyond the nation's capital. We're learning about another investigation winding down, one that could also result in charges. And leading this hour, the January 6th committee referring Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution shortly after laying out why 
They believe the former president is ultimately responsible for the insurrection. The committee members sent four criminal referrals against Trump to the DOJ. Obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, conspiracy to make a false statement to the government, and lastly, most significantly perhaps, aiding or assisting in an insurrection. Now remember, the Justice Department has no legal obligation to act on these congressional referrals. There is already a special counsel investigating Trump's role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Republican Congresswoman and Vice Chair of the Committee Liz Cheney of Wyoming reminded everyone today why, in her view, this is not only about the past, but about the country's future. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. Our coverage starts with CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us with the takeaways from this final meeting of the January 6th House Select Committee earlier today. After a sprawling investigation with more than 1,000 witnesses interviewed and reams of new evidence obtained, the January 6th committee today concluded that Donald Trump was directly responsible for the Capitol insurrection and recommended that the Justice Department prosecute the former president on four federal charges. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. The unprecedented developments come after the seven committee Democrats and two Republicans voted unanimously to adopt the report and issue criminal referrals against Trump and one of his attorneys, John Eastman. In a 154-page summary of the report released today, the committee also accusing several of Donald Trump's associates like attorneys Rudy Giuliani and Kenneth Cheeseborough, along with former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows and ex-top DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, as taking part in a conspiracy. In making its case at a final public meeting, the committee detailing how Trump ignored many of his top advisors who tried to persuade him to acknowledge his loss. He wanted to talk about that he thought the, uh, the election had been uh, stolen or, or was corrupt and that there was widespread fraud. And I had told him that uh, our reviews had not shown that to be the case. Instead, he pressured then-Vice President Mike Pence, even berating him on the morning of January 6th as he was set to preside over the certification of Biden's victory. I remember hearing the word wimp. While also uncovering details about his weeks-long pressure campaign against state officials to change their election results. As he tried to strong-arm the Justice Department to make purposely false statements to keep him in office despite knowing he lost. All culminating in instructing his supporters to march on the Capitol on January 6th. He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is, is winning. The committee even accused Trump of spreading false claims of election fraud for the purposes of soliciting contributions in the amount of about $250 million. It outlined possible attempts to influence witness testimony, potential employment dangled before one unnamed witness, and an unnamed lawyer advising a client. The witness could, in certain circumstances, tell the committee that she didn't recall facts when she actually did recall them. 
that lawmakers also referred House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and three members of his conference, Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and Andy Biggs, to be sanctioned by the House Ethics Committee for failing to comply with subpoenas as part of their investigation. We did not uh, choose to make referrals based on the underlying conduct, but rather um, uh, on the uh, essentially open and shut failure to comply with the congressional subpoena. Now, most on Capitol Hill don't expect much from the evenly divided House Ethics Committee, especially as we head to the end of this Congress and the beginning of the new one. Jim Jordan's spokesman did respond to this uh, effort by the, to refer him to the Ethics Committee, calling it a, quote, political stunt. But, Jake, I just caught up with the number two Senate Republican, John Thune, who was noncommittal about how he viewed the committee's work, but acknowledged they interviewed, quote, credible witnesses. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Here with me to discuss is the former... Acting Chief of Staff in the Trump White House, Mick Mulvaney, uh, Congressman, former Congressman Mulvaney, uh, thanks for joining us. L- listening to the case that the January 6th House Committee members have laid out against Trump over the past few months, what is your personal take? Do you think Donald Trump broke the law? Um, I, Jake, by the way, thanks for having me. Uh, very interesting questions. I, I think the most interesting question about breaking the law probably goes to obstruction. I, I still don't think there was any hard evidence. And again, this, you're talking about criminal allegations. So you need really solid evidence. You need proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I just don't think they've got that on inciting to riot and all the things, the sedition and all that. But it's that obstruction charge that continues to get my my attention. I think Manu was correct to, to point it out. So often in this business, it's not the crime. It's the cover up. Um, and if they've got people willing to go under oath and say that Trump or someone on his team offer them benefits or try to interfere with their testimony, that could be a real problem for him. So after all of this, it looks like the the biggest takeaway, at least from where I'm sitting, has very little to do with January 6th and a lot to do with what happened after that date. You don't think there's sufficient evidence to prove that Donald Trump tried to obstruct a government proceeding, the certification of votes on January 6th? It's a really good question. Again, they don't. What kind of evidence will they be able to use at court? Keep in mind, the January 6th committee was not a, a criminal investigation. It was a congressional investigation. And the rules of evidence are very different there. For example, a lot of what Cassidy Hutchinson said, which I think is very credible, would still not be allowed at a criminal trial because it's hearsay and so forth. So the rules are going to be different. The standard in the January 6th committee was politics. The standard of the DOJ is going to be a crime, and that's a different, a different standard entirely. Okay. Stepping outside of the realm of what's prosecutable, just as a human being who yeah. watched it all, don't you think Donald Trump was trying to stop the certification of the election? I mean, that's just uh, not commenting whether or not it's criminal. Wasn't he just trying to stop the certification yeah. of the election? I get that impression. I do. Look, I mean, look, you don't have to convince me. I'm the person who quit over the riot. So it's not like I'm trying to defend him in a circumstance. I'm just telling you that after the commission has gone through its work, I don't know if there's enough evidence there. Keep in mind, at the end of the day, Jake, I don't think this changes much anyway for this simple reason. The Department of Justice is already investigating. The FBI is already investigating. They've already asked the commission to share their evidence. So I don't know how these criminal referrals change much. I think the Department of Justice will say, thank you very much for the referral. Thank you for the evidence. We're going to continue to go about our business. And I have no feel one way or the other. But in my gut, I think that obstruction charge is probably the one that should frighten the Trump team the most. Congresswoman Elaine Luria uh, today spoke about Trump's dereliction of duty, in her view, during the insurrection. She showed this graphic showing all the people who texted Mark Meadows urging Trump to tell the rioters to go home 
including a number of Fox News personalities, a number of MAGA individuals in Congress. You're there as well. Yours says, Mark, he needs to stop this now. Can I do anything to help? Doesn't this demonstrate that Trump knew what he was doing and by not telling the rioters to go home? Again, I think it's some evidence, but you use the right word, I think, which is dereliction of duty. That's why I quit. I don't think dereliction of duty is a crime. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Again, I'm trying to look at this as dispassionately as I can. I used to defend the president on January 6th. I've stopped doing that in large part because of what the January 6th commission brought to light. It's clear that this was not a peaceful rally as the president laid out. It's clear that he lost the election in 2020. And any reasonable person who watched the Republicans testify under oath about the 2020 election would come away from this realizing that Donald Trump didn't win the election. So there's a lot of value, I think, that came out of the January 6th commission. But the question is, is there hard evidence there that could be used to convict him? I'm still, I, I just don't see that. And I'd be curious to see whether or not the Department of Justice takes the House up on their invitation. If they don't, Jake, if the Department of Justice refuses to take up these criminal referrals, I think it speaks a lot about the evidence that the Department of Justice thought they could actually prove. We also heard um, a new uh, moment, a new video moment from former Trump advisor Hope Hicks. Let's take a listen. He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is, is winning. So that does seem to presi- uh, present some sort of information in terms of state of mind. He didn't want to lose, even though he knew he was losing, because he, he was worried about protecting his legacy. You knew the president well. Does that square with what you knew? Oh, yeah. That sounds entirely consistent with the president that I knew. But play the chess match and tell me why that, that is evidence of a crime. Donald Trump hates to lose. Um, and I entirely believe, I think Hope was very credible in her testimony. It was testimony we saw, I believe, for the first time today. Very credible. I'd have to say if they asked me under oath, was that consistent with what I saw to Donald Trump? Yes, it is. But it's a far reach from, boy, I really hate to, to, to lose and I'll, I'll do anything to win to proving that there were crimes committed. Again, that's why I think that type of person, by the way, would 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 be very likely perhaps to to. Uh, obstruct justice to interfere with a with a with an investigation into what happened. So, does it help sort of set the environment and and, and establish the the uh, atmosphere in which this was going on? Yes, but again, to prove a, a crime, you got to have a lot more than what Hope Hicks just gave, gave the committee today. Mick Mulvaney, thank you so much. If I don't see you, have a good and happy and merry Christmas. Coming up, the Justice Department is not the only thing on the minds of Trump's legal team. Why they may have Georgia on their minds as well. And breaking news, the Supreme Court just now weighed in on the Trump-era Title 42 border policy set to expire in two days. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news for you now. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily granted a request from Republican governors to keep in place the Trump-era pandemic border rule known as Title 42. It allows the U.S. government to push back asylum seekers out of the country because of the pandemic. That policy was set to expire on Wednesday. And CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us live now. Jessica, tell us more about the decision. 
Yeah, Jake, so the Supreme Court just acting here, and because of it, it looks like Title 42 will not end as was anticipated on Wednesday. This has really been a complicated maneuvering through various courts over the past few days and weeks. What the Supreme Court is saying here is they're saying that, yes, we will um, grant the Republican-led state's request that we, we put the ending of this program on pause for now, so it will not end on Wednesday as originally planned. However, this is really just temporary relief here. What the Supreme Court is saying is that they want to hear from both parties, the Republican-led states as well as the ACLU. They want more briefing on this, and then they'll decide definitively in the coming days what to do here. But right now, the Supreme Court putting the brakes on the end of this program. Now, this is a fight that has been all over, bouncing all over several courts. It was just Friday night, however, that the U.S. Court of Appeals here in D.C. stepped in and said, hey, Republican-led states, we're not going to let you interfere in this. You can't step in to try to stop Title 42 from going away. Those Republican-led states, though, they moved quickly to the Supreme Court. They filed today, and the Supreme Court acting just as quickly in the past few minutes, saying, yes, we will agree with the Republican-led states. We will put this on hold for right now as this plays out. So, Jake, this is an incremental victory for Republican-led states. It is not the final say on this issue. However, it does give those Republican-led states a victory here by not ending Title 42 on Wednesday. The only caveat that I'll mention here is that briefings from all of these parties, they're due tomorrow. So it's possible, although slight, that the Supreme Court could act in the coming days here before the end of the week. So right now it looks like uh, Title 42 will not end on Wednesday, but the Supreme Court could move pretty quickly here and make a decision, maybe to the contrary, in the coming days. So we continue that uh, ping pong of the court system right now with the Supreme Court stepping in just minutes ago, Jake. So I know you can't predict, but... <clears throat> Tell us, like, what, what's your assessment about what might happen next? What are the possibilities? Well, it seems like the mere fact that they're stepping in here and allowing this temporary injunction to take hold, siding with the Republican-led states here, it's possible that they might grant this emergency application, effectively putting Title 42, the end of it, on pause for quite some time. So the Republican-led states could end up having a significant victory here because the Supreme Court could be poised to step in, maybe take up this emergency appeal, kick the can down the road so Title 42 stays in place more than just this week, maybe more than just this month into next year. It appears that the Supreme Court could potentially side with the Republican-led states as they sort of have done in this interim order here, Jake. All right. I want to uh, bring in CNN's Ed Lavendera into the conversation. Ed, you're at the border, and this is a humanitarian crisis you've been describing for weeks. Shelters are already overflowing. Do you think the Supreme Court keeping Title 42 in place, at least for now, will have any impact on what's going on there? Well, there are still uh, a, a steady flow of people crossing the border, uh, irregardless of what is going on with uh, Title 42. So uh, on this side, there are still a a large-sized number of people here in the El Paso area who are still being released. So that doesn't really weaken the pressure on the uh, shelters and the churches that have been housing many of these migrants here in the El Paso area. But Jake, as this news was breaking, I was literally in the middle of an interview uh, with a gentleman named Ruben Garcia. And Ruben is one of the, if not the most well-known 
advocate for migrants here in the El Paso area. He has worked for decades and runs uh, a shelter called the Annunciation House. Uh, he is the uh, most prominent uh, person involved in helping migrants and uh, an advocate for the shelters and the churches uh, here in the El Paso area. And as we sat down to do the interview, uh, we were essentially giving him the breaking news about what this was happening. And his reaction was simply this. He's like, they have known for a month that this judge had ordered this, all of this last minute. So you can really sense uh, this uh, sense of frustration and exasperation uh, that so many leaders in Washington have had time to figure out what to do with all of this. But all of this always seemingly coming down to the very last moment. Uh, in the days, and these are shelters that are trying to plan uh, as far ahead as they can, and right now they're just trying to keep their heads above water, uh, waking up every day, trying to figure out how much bed space and and, uh, and shelter space is available in the city. So all of this, once again, throwing up, uh, uh, throwing everything up in the air at the very last minute is very frustrating for the men and women who are uh, doing all sorts of uh, intense work uh, to, to keep the situation here from turning into a humanitarian disaster on the streets of, of these border towns. All right, Ed Lavendera and Jessica Schneider with the breaking news. Thank you so much. Coming up, Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, weighing in on the criminal referrals of his former boss to the Justice Department. His take might surprise you or it might not. Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead. CNN is learning. Trump's legal team appears fractured. They're disagreeing over how to move forward on several of the investigations that Donald Trump is currently facing, especially when it comes to the classified documents case. To make matters worse and more confusing for Trump's lawyers, sources tell us, a final report is coming soon from Fulton County, Georgia. That's where a grand jury investigated efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election, specifically in Georgia. Remember to find the votes. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Palance. Caitlin, what are we expecting from this final report from Fulton County, Georgia? That's the Atlanta area. Well, Jake, Fulton County, Georgia, Georgia, the state, really ended up being an epicenter after the election of all of these efforts of Donald Trump, some of the things, many of the things the House Select Committee investigated uh, and really drew attention to. But the list is long of how comprehensive this investigation has been around Georgia in 2020. There was that uh, looking in uh, of the grand jury and the district attorney into the Trump call to the secretary of state to find votes. Uh, there are also many false election claims that were being made in court, things like uh, lawyers claiming fraud that just wasn't there in Georgia. There's the fake electors that were active. There were some efforts to, to get in t- uh, to to uh, get in touch with voting machines there uh, and potentially tamper with them. And then there was also uh, harassment of election workers. That was something that we saw testimony in the House Select Committee. So now this grand jury in Georgia is going to continue their work. They're headed to a final report as well uh, that then will be able to make a recommendation on a possible indictment. The one thing that they get to do uh, that the House Select Committee did not is that they were able to get courts to order some witnesses uh, like Senator Lindsey Graham, Michael Flynn, uh, and even Mark Meadows to show up to testify. And Caitlin, uh, I know it's tough for our viewers perhaps to keep track of all the criminal investigations into Donald Trump, but there's also this one uh, that we referred to earlier today, the referrals to the Justice Department, the criminal referrals for criminal charges against Donald Trump and others. Where does this leave special counsel Jack Smith 
who is also conducting two separate investigations into Donald Trump. Right. So the Justice Department, a separate investigation at the federal level. If there are any charges that were to emerge out of that, it would be in federal court, federal grand jury sitting in Washington, D.C. And what this leaves uh, Smith with, the special counsel, uh, is that the committee has done interviews of hundreds of people and has promised to make a lot of those interviews, the transcripts of them, available. We've already seen many of the witnesses having snippets of their depositions on tape being played in these hearings. But the Justice Department is going to be looking closely for what those transcripts say. We also uh, are learning that the Trump team as well, Kristen Holmes here at CNN was reporting today, the Trump team is going to be watching for those transcripts too to see if they could give insight into the Justice Department investigation. But we know that's going to continue on. And we know that they are looking at the types of possible crimes that the House Select Committee is recommending around the president. All right, Caitlin Plants, thanks so much. January 6th, House Committee member Jamie Raskin explained why the panel is asking the Justice Department to criminally charge Donald Trump. Take a listen. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump Let's discuss with my panel uh, and Gloria Senate. Republican leader Mitch McConnell just released a statement about the January 6th referrals. Quote, the entire nation knows who is responsible for that day. Beyond that, I don't have any immediate observations. <laughs> uh, he is obviously referring to Donald Trump without referring to Donald Trump. Uh, what do you so. think? Well, yeah. he said it uh, in December. He, he uh, right? No, no, I'm sorry. He said it in January uh, that the mob was directed by Donald Trump. Right. He blamed, he gave a very forthcoming speech about it and then basically didn't say anything about it. Yeah, he said it on the Senate floor. Yeah. And um, he has tried to keep his mouth shut uh, time and time again. And I think a lot of Republicans are doing that right now because they don't know what to make of Donald Trump and they can't quite figure out uh, what's going to happen to him and how that affects their own self-preservation as uh, politically. But I think what we saw from the committee today, I was sort of making a list after we did the hearings today, was that Donald Trump lost. He knew he lost. He conspired. He obstructed and he aided an insurrection. That's all. And I was surprised by the kind of the breadth of the charges today. It doesn't mean the Justice Department's going to do it that way. But I was kind of surprised by uh, the amount of charges they leveled at him. Do you think this is going to have any effect, David, on his 2024 run? Is this we see in polls, uh, certain polls here and there. Uh, Ron DeSantis rising and Donald Trump falling. Uh, Pat Toomey was on my show, uh, one of your favorite senators, uh, on my show on Sunday saying that he thinks Donald Trump is losing his grip on the Republican Party. Yeah, so uh, again, as we know, we discussed this many times. The parties, there's not just a monolithic Republican Party, right? There's the, as I call it, the ride-or-die Trumpers, right? They get folks who who aren't giving up no matter what. And that 30 35%, I don't think this has any impact. This is purely white noise for them. Hmm. What happened today, it's political. It's just as political as any of the impeachments, um, the, the, uh, the Mueller investigation. I think they hear it just the same way, just static. It's like the old Charlie Brown, wah, 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 right? That's what they hear, right? They don't hear. It's not bad. It's pretty good. Um, but they, don't, they don't hear anything else, right? And so and, and it's, it's, it's somewhat you know, disturbing to me because 
maybe if the if the Democrats hadn't gone after those two first, when when democracy is actually in jeopardy, that had taken this more seriously, Republicans would have tuned in a little bit more. Well, the second one was about January. Yeah, so. No, no, I, I understand, but I'm saying like the the, the first, the Mueller, the, the the very 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 long mm. uh, Adams. You know, we had uh, Adam Schiff coming on every day saying. And a democracy, so him out there, kind of is the spokesperson, doesn't help amongst Republicans. I'm just there, that's, that's what I hear. There, so, w- there were some new findings though today in these hearings as well that we haven't heard in the previous televised hearings. I mean, uh, including the casting doubt on Tony Ornato's testimony. We remember we had that debate between the Secret Service agents and uh, and Hutchinson's testimony as well about Trump's actions while he was in the motorcade as well. Um, you know, during the day of the actual riot, there was also some of the findings around the law enforcement apparatus. The Secret Service as well having intelligence and having it with the National Security Council in the days leading up to that attack. There's been a lot of criticism I've heard from the Republican Party about uh, the lack of focus and even debate within the committee about the focus that should be given towards law enforcement breakdown versus Trump. Today we saw both. We did see criticism both towards the former president as well as some of the apparatus, the law enforcement apparatus leading up to the attack. So, uh, Kristen, uh, Jamie Raskin, we just ran this clip of him. Uh, talking about how in this country, you know, we don't just go after the foot soldiers uh, and ringleaders get a pass. Yeah. And it's very aspirational. It is. He's a constitutional law <laughs> professor. I don't begrudge him saying that. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking to myself, that's not true. That's exactly That's entirely what the United States government does, is <laughs> yeah. we go after the foot soldiers and the ringleaders yeah. get away. All the Everybody time. Everybody knows right. that. Everybody knows that. It's not how it should be, which I think was his point. Right. And so there needs to be some accountability at the top because we are seeing a lot of people, regular people who showed up because Donald Trump told them to show up and ended up, you know, doing a lot of things that got them in trouble. And they're going to spend time in in prison for it. And a lot of people are being prosecuted. And so why not the people at the top or the person at the top? I, I, look, I just think that if you're... 40-year-old, 50-year-old adult, right? You're responsible for your own conduct. Like your mother used to say. Well, if, I don't think Jake, if he told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Right? No, no, nobody's, nobody's, nobody, just, yeah. nobody's saying nobody's they should saying they're not responsible. Yeah. The yeah. point is they're, they're, being, held, they're, they're being held accountable, as they should be, and so should Donald Trump. And I, I see that a lot of Republicans are saying, I think Mick Mulvaney was saying this earlier, that, yes, of course, what he did was terrible, but he didn't, you know, we can't, he didn't actually commit oh, a crime. And yet we have four crimes that are clearly laid out, you know, by the committee. And I don't understand how any, under any circumstance anyone could think that the crime wasn't committed. Yeah. You can make an argument. It might be hard to prove it in a court of well, law. That, that was so interesting to me today on the committee talking about insurrection. Yeah. They didn't say specifically that he led the insurrection. Mm-hmm. They said it, uh, that he, he gave comfort, aid, aid and comfort, aid and comfort yeah. which is, you know, Article 14, Section 3 of the Constitution. Not that you read it. Not that I've read it. No, I and talked that, to Dr. Samuel Mudd about what that means. And, yeah. and that, that means that if you are convicted under that, that you cannot run for office again. Right. Right. And that was specific. And, it, you know, it speaks to the point of those people at the top at the bottom, should be held accountable. And people at the top should be held accountable. I don't think anybody, Liz Cheney, I don't want to channel her or anything, but, you know, I think her whole point has been that he is unfit for office, as she says. And so that was the point. I, I want to play this sound from former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who has been critical of the committee. Uh, and, well, just take a listen. I think the president's actions and words on January 6th were reckless. Um, but I don't know that it's criminal. it's criminal to Got take it. bad advice from lawyers, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I, I well, hope the Justice be, Department is careful on that too. 
Well, right, so we'll, we'll see on that. Well, but We're Dana, I, I want to tell you, I, I, I hope the Justice Department understands the magnitude of the very idea of sure. indicting a former president of the United States. I think that would be terribly divisive in the country. Okay, just as a matter of fact, can I just say, if the advice that your lawyers are giving you, this bad advice, is to commit crimes, then it is criminal mm. to take bad advice from lawyers. <laughs> right. That's yeah. the definition of it. You don't get a, that's not a pass. Yeah, no, it isn't a pass. And, and I think, look, the, the January 6th committee versus the Department of Justice, the committee is political. They can have, as you said, it's aspirational. The Department of Justice has to be, in the light of day, sure. be able to prove these crimes beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very, very big rock to push up a hill. The other thing that I think is interesting is Mike, is, uh, Mike Pence, Vice President Pence, suggesting that, uh, that it would be divisive to <laughs> indict the former president, yeah. that, that almost as if that's the divisive thing we're talking about. Yeah. What Donald Trump did on January 6th was right. reckless, exactly. but it would be divisive. That's exactly what I thought. Di- divisive. Like, you know what's divisive? What Donald Trump did. And is there, is there really any person who thinks that Donald Trump wasn't trying to disrupt an official meeting of Congress? Is there Anybody who thinks that that's not what he was doing. (laughs) Right, but that's the point. And that's one of the things that they referred to the. Except, remember, he wanted to go up on Capitol Hill. Well, what was he going to do up there? But what was he going to do up there? So, well, he didn't want them to certify the election. So that's, I mean, we know this has all been laid out. So the idea that, yeah, that's divisive to hold the person accountable that caused this is, it's absurd. There's no (laughs) doubt that there's a difference in terms of the standard in the bar between Mm -hmm. the committee and the Justice sure, Department. absolutely. But one thing to remember, one thing to watch is also this obstruction charge and the language around obstruction. Obstruction. obstruction referrals. Referral, yeah. Um, that being that... Obstructing you, a government act. You correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Because if you look at when the Justice Department also went and seized Jeffrey Clark's phone, there was a statute that they referenced that was obstruction as well. Now, obviously, this does, that does not mean they're going to proceed with that charge at this point, but just something to watch as we look for any type of indicators from the Justice Department. We, we also case. have a federal judge who came out and said that uh, Mr. Eastman and Donald Trump were probably breaking the law, and he was referring to obstruction. Mm-hmm. Thanks to all so. for being here. really appreciate it. It could be a matter of life and death for Afghans, Afghan allies who risk their lives To help Americans, next we're going to talk to the generals and admirals urging Congress to act now. Stay with us. In our politics lead, lives are literally on the line if Congress does not act. Thousands of Afghan refugees who risked it all working for the U.S. military back in Afghanistan could be deported if lawmakers do not pass the Afghan Adjustment Act before the end of the week. The bipartisan legislation would provide a pathway to permanent residence for thousands of Afghans already in the United States, along with help with health care and finding jobs. Now, as CNN was the first to report, more than two dozen former and retired U.S. military leaders, including uh, three chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, one NATO Supreme Allied Commander and more, have written to Congress urging them to include the Afghan Adjustment Act in the larger government spending bill that needs to pass before the weekend. Joining me now is one of those signatories, one of the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. Admiral Mullen, it's, it's always an honor to have you on. Thank you. Uh, so you're one of the retired officers urging lawmakers to include this act into the spending bill and saying it's a national security issue. Explain why you think it's a national security issue. Well, I think at a very high level, uh, Jake, it is a moral imperative uh, uh, for us to take care of those who gave so much and risk their lives 
uh, while we were fighting in Afghanistan. And it wasn't just the ground forces, because there were many Afghans throughout the entire government agency, the State Department, uh, et cetera, who supported us as well. Um, I think long term, if we're unable to support those who gave so much, uh, others will look at us in the future and uh, we might fall short in gathering that support. Uh, we work hard to take care of our friends and our allies, and nobody was closer to us on the ground in particular in Afghanistan than those who supported us, many of whom actually lost their lives uh, in that support. So in other words, I mean, God forbid that our troops are ever sent abroad to do something else, but the, the world is what it is, and that may in fact happen. You're saying that in the eventuality that that does happen, U.S. service members uh, go abroad, we're going to have a tougher time. The United States is going to have a tougher time getting help from locals because they will see how we mistreated, how the United States government mistreated Afghan allies. I think that sums it up very well, Jake. In every war we've been in, as, as tragic as they are, we've always depended uh, on local support. Uh, and that was certainly true uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and supporting those who are actually fortunate enough to get here in that evacuation uh, is something that we should do uh, to help them and help their future. And that will not be lost uh, on the 100,000 or so, or so who are still in Afghanistan uh, that deserve uh, leaving the country that we're trying to support uh, and their families. So it's a huge issue uh, to take care of those who gave so much in support of us. So in addition to the letter from you, all the uh, retired flag officers at your level, uh, there's also all the individuals who served almost every single uh, ambassador to Afghanistan since 2001 uh, has also is also supporting this legislation. I know lots of veterans groups, uh, lots of Gold Star families, uh, lots of veterans, including and maybe even especially conservative, politically conservative veterans. On the other hand, uh, is the argument made by Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. He says that this could weaken the vetting process uh, of these Afghans, allowing potentially dangerous actors safe harbor here. How do you respond to that? I, I think it's, uh, I know there were uh, some issues raised on the Republican side, and I understand those were addressed. I, I understand Senator Grassley uh, is not supporting this for the reason that you lay out. Uh, I do know that, in fact, one of the reasons the evacuation went so slowly was because of a very strict uh, vetting process. Uh, so it, there's going to be some risk associated with this. I don't think there's any question. But my my worry, Jake, is like so many things, this just gets tied up uh, in the politics in Washington right now. Uh, and individual lives and families are at stake. Uh, and that I would like I'd love to see this issue, you know, be raised above politics, which is very difficult in the times in which we live to take care of these people. Uh, so I would hope that somebody like Senator Grassley, uh, who you know could make an exception here in his position to uh, help these people. And your point about veterans and veterans organizations uh, uh, widely uh, support this. Those who fought uh, uh, bravely for so long, uh, there are very few to, to there, there's almost no one that wouldn't support passing this bill and helping out these people. Oh, I, I mean, after. Um Kabul fell in August 2021. I know so many uh, veterans who spent literally weeks, months of their lives trying to get their former interpreters 
and other aides out of the country with their family to the United States. Uh, liberal veterans, conservative veterans, moderate veterans, apolitical veterans. It didn't matter. It wasn't about the politics of it all. It was about uh, pe- people who risk their lives to save the U.S. Uh, in Afghanistan. What happens if they do get deported? What happens to these tens of thousands of Afghan allies if they get deported? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it almost it, it breaks a sacred obligation that we have if we were to do that. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what would happen, although I would suspect it would be very difficult to uh, return to the U.S. Uh, and these are brave people with families looking for a future in a country that uh, values uh, immigration and values individuals who come here uh, and uh, work hard to make their own way, pay their own dues. And I think if they are deported, obviously that gets broken immediately. Uh, and it, it, it really undoes a tremendous effort to get here uh, for them, uh, and it really breaks up their future. It's an important thing that hopefully we'll get a vote on the Senate floor because a source just had told me, uh, a, a Senate source just told me it is not, it has not been included in the final omnibus spending bill. It's bad news uh, for all those Afghan allies and those who love them. Uh, Admiral Mike Mellon, I know you're going to keep on the phone and continue your advocacy to get a vote on this amendment to put it into the uh, spending bill. Thank you so much. Still ahead, remembering a beloved member of the CNN family that we lost too soon. This weekend, we lost a treasured member of the CNN family. Senior investigative correspondent Drew Griffin passed away after a battle with cancer. Drew was an excellent storyteller, award-winning, who worked tirelessly to expose the truth. Our colleague Anderson Cooper now takes a look at Drew's storied career. It was so hot. During his nearly two decades at CNN, Drew Griffin was known for his tenacious reporting. Are you worried you'll be indicted before the election, sir? His interviews were unwavering. I don't think you really understand how votes are cast, collected, and tabulated in this country. And he gave a voice to those who didn't have one. We don't expect it to be easy. We don't expect the truth to be easy. Drew was a gifted storyteller, dedicated to seeking the truth and holding the powerful accountable. Why do you continue to push the lie that the uh, 2020 election was stolen? It's not a lie. It's a lie. You have no proofs. We've looked at all the facts. You You don't have the facts. And Drew's stories had real-world impact. Well, Uber doesn't release the number of drivers who are accused of sexual assault, so CNN decided to count up ourselves. After CNN questioned Uber about a string of sexual assaults by drivers, the company made major safety changes to its app and revised its policies. Excellent reporting. Uh, Thanks to you and your team. Drew exposed serious issues at VA hospitals across the country, revealing a broken system, veterans dying while waiting for care. This particular veteran was screaming, Please do whatever you can. Don't let the VA do this to another patient or another veteran. We do not deserve this type of treatment. That led to the resignation of the VA secretary and an overhaul of the VA's scheduling system. Gas here in Hatay. He covered business and terrorism, the environment and politics. Mr. Birch, Mr. Birch. And there were many people over the years who didn't want to answer his questions. Please talk to us, Director. Director Hellman. Did the background checks of those companies not reveal the fact that you are accused of torture and murder? Do you know Alex Ferdman, a convicted felon who apparently runs one of these clinics and has been billing the state of California for several years? 
despite the fact that there have been complaints. Drew won most of journalism's big awards, but that's not what motivated him. He cared about people and how they were impacted. Get out, dude! While he was covering the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, he ended up rescuing a man from floodwaters. Don't, 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 don't fall backwards. All right, sir, you all right? All right, hold on, hold on. His job as a correspondent took him all across the country. It wasn't that long ago these wild Pawnee grasslands were just that, wild. Now, almost everywhere you look is a gas rig. And to different parts of the world. But his favorite place was home. He was deeply devoted to his family, his wife, Margaret, and his three children, Ella, Louie, and Miles, as well as two grandchildren. Drew Griffin will be missed by all of us. Taken from us far, far too soon, Drew and his reporting will be sorely missed. May his memory be a blessing. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.